Hey guys, welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, episode four. And for today, I've got a really fantastic guest. I've got J.W. Weatherman. So welcome, J.W. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm uh, looking forward yeah. to chatting today. Awesome, awesome. So I'll just give JW a quick intro for the listeners. So JW Weatherman, obviously this is his pseudonym, um, but he is a software security expert who has come into Bitcoin now. He's the writer of the Bitcoin threat model. He's a podcaster and content creator within Bitcoin. And another one of his projects is mathbot.com, which is basically a project that tries to create online education in terms of teaching math and teaching fundamentals of programming to children or adults as well. Um, And the reason I wanted to get him, JW, on today was basically to talk about why Bitcoin and not the others. So, I think what we could do is maybe let's start with some of the positive reasons in favor of Bitcoin. So, JW, did did you have any comments to start with on that point? Yeah, yeah. I think the the best thing that's in favor for Bitcoin is probably just understanding how open source software works. Um, so open source software is very collaborative, and uh, it's not it's not like Microsoft versus um, Google, right? It's <clears throat> all of the smart people working on the problem working together, and even if they're working on a different project, like even if um, let's say they're they're, they forked uh, the open source project, and they're they're working on their own thing called Fredcoin. Um, the uh, the natural thing that happens is that if Fredcoin does anything useful, then the Bitcoin guys would pick that up, right? So there's no there's nothing hidden in open source software. Like every useful thing that's done is exposed to the whole world. Um, and everybody is free to copy the things that are useful and continue to collaborate and build something better. And that's why if you look at something like databases, there tends to be a small number of databases, right? You have something like SQL Server or MySQL, or SQL Server is a bad example, that's closed source, but something like MySQL or um, uh, another database. But if you want a SQL database, you tend to use MySQL, right? And maybe there's there's one or two other ones that are that are popular that are playing around with something kind of interesting. Um, but this is even worse if you look at something like a protocol, because the whole idea of a protocol is like a language. It becomes more useful the more people that use the same language. So something like Bitcoin in an open source context, it's probably better to compare that to something like uh, the internet protocols like TCP/IP, and uh, and the way that that works is if somebody had an idea to make the internet protocol better, they might fork it, they might screw around with some stuff to experiment. But if they do anything useful, they want to get it into the standard because everybody's using that same thing to communicate. And and really, money is a protocol. Money's always been a technology since before we really used the word technology uh, to solve specific problems that humanity is facing and uh, coordinating trade. Um, so all of this combines together to uh, to really work for the benefit of the leading project, right? Um, because if anybody does anything useful, it's going to have a tendency to be there. So hopefully that makes sense. But I, th- I think overall, that's the reason that um, that Bitcoin is special because it's the first, it's the biggest, it has the smartest people working on it, it has the most people working on it, and this is all open source. So it's really basically impossible to have a competitive advantage. Yep, yep, fantastic point. And um, I think from an economic point of view, we can look back to some of the writings of Karl Menger, such as his essay on the origins of money. And in that essay, he basically presents this argument of money as the most saleable asset. It's, you know, in other words, the most liquid asset. And it makes sense that as soon as one money kind of starts to get found, it kind of has that reflexive nature that pushes it to the top and pushes everything else down. And I think the points that you were making there, JW, were fantastic in terms of the network effects around that. And I think particularly what you were referring to there is often around the developers of Bitcoin. And what what we find is that really the best developers, some of the best developers in the world are working on Bitcoin and they're working on, you know, Bitcoin core development at the protocol level. And then you've got other guys who are working on, you know, the wallet software and other ways to integrate it all together. 
some other network effects that we could talk about are in the examples of exchanges. So um, notice how most of the exchanges are basically Bitcoin is the is the reserve currency of the crypto world. And so even if they offer fiat to other altcoin pairs, the volume on those is terrible. So anyone trying to move a large amount of coins would end up moving the market when they try to move a large amount of coins. And so these are kind of all tendencies that point us towards use of Bitcoin. Now, JW, you've made a good point in the past um, with your comments around proof of work mining. So uh, maybe you want to comment a little bit on how that is another factor and another network effect in favor of Bitcoin. Yeah, I think I think what's going on with um, with the with many of the competing currencies, many of the altcoins, um, and I, I do completely agree, incidentally, about the most saleable asset point that Manger makes. I think that's an effect of what money is. Right, we're trying to come up with, you know, I have chickens, you have goats. You don't want chickens. Um, I don't want goats, or vice versa. Um, and we're trying to come up with a third thing that we can use to facilitate that trade. Well, the more that third thing gets used, the more valuable it is to use in trade because the more people will want it, the more people will tend to have it and be willing to give it away. Um, and if you if you understand what money is, like if you understand the reason that a civilization adopts money, you understand that it becomes the most saleable asset because that's that's the whole purpose of adopting it, right? Um, the whole purpose of adopting it is to facilitate trade. So it's this interesting evolution that we see happen in all different civilizations uh, as their economies advance, and you don't end up with multiple monies. Um, that's that's not money. That's called barter. Um, we have one small exception that really confuses people. Well, a couple. One is silver and gold. Um, but the only reason we had silver and that was, in a sense, a step back towards barter is because gold was too precious. Uh, too, another way to say it is it didn't subdivide very well. Uh, when you buy, want to buy a can of soda, you know, if you're trying to scrape off with your fingernail uh, a, a, the, the appropriate number of micrograms of gold, it just doesn't work very well, especially given that they didn't even have scales that could measure micrograms back then. So they, they used silver, but that was a step back towards barter. It was a bad thing. It was a compromise. And and that's why banking became such a big deal, uh, because it allowed us to get rid of silver and deal with gold's uh, limitation in being subdivided. Um, so uh, that, that's one point. The other point that I think people really get hung up with when you say something like the most saleable asset is they look around the world and they see that there's you know tons of competing currencies right now. Uh, but what they're what they're failing to realize is that's not a result of market activity. That's a result of the threat of government violence. Um, if I could, all of my contracts would be written in something other than U.S. dollars. Probably, um, I would certainly pay all my debts in something other than U.S. dollars. Maybe it'd be gold. Maybe it'd be Bitcoin. Uh, I'm not sure. But uh, but I don't, as a U.S. citizen, have that option. If I tried to write a contract in Bitcoin, it would be enforceable in U.S. dollars. If I try to write uh, a contract in gold, there's actually a government mandated exchange rate of dollars to gold uh, that makes that impossible, right? So there's all these rules that are, you know, there's a guy with a gun saying you can't do these certain things that puts us in a place where we use currencies like, you know, you think the guys in Venezuela want to use the boulevard right now? No, they don't, but they're stuck with it uh, because of the threat of government violence. So if you take that out and you look at history, you do realize that. We had a tendency to use gold and silver was kind of a stopgap and it wasn't ideal and it caused a bunch of problems. Um, and so we, we are working to get back as an economy, right? As a global economy, we'd much rather have one thing, which is that most saleable asset. Um, but as far as uh, exchanges and, um, and, and, and that network effect, I think that that is, uh, I think that's another way to look at it. And I think those are all also really good reasons that we would have a tendency to use one thing. Um, and, you know, I think with the proof of work, what's going on is that basically there is a, there's a misunderstanding about the purpose of proof of work and what it does. And if you're trying to sell a scam coin, it's a really good idea to take advantage of that misunder that technical misunderstanding of the purpose of proof of work in order to, uh, in order to encourage people to mine it, which encourages people to own it, which is basically uh, dumb money marketing, right? So the purpose of proof of work is to uh, consume electricity 
um, because electricity is a real-world asset that people value, um, to prove that you've consumed electricity so that you have skin in the game when you're confirming a set of transactions or when you're forming a block, so that if you do something that is not legitimate, um, like you try to include an invalid transaction and the network rejects it, you have become poor, right? So it's a security mechanism to punish miners that don't behave. Um, and on the other side, it's a, it's a mechanism to reward miners that do behave by mining valid blocks. So you want that to be at the height of human capability. Like you want to burn that electricity as efficiently as possible. Um, and what all the altcoins do is they say, oh, we're going to do something that is less efficient. And somehow that's going to be good for uh, good for security, right? They claim it creates more decentralization. Uh, but all it really does is make the network that much easier to attack. Unfortunately, you know, the, the misinformed uh, get really excited about being able to participate in this stupid scam. And it, it is a good marketing tactic. So, yeah, um, great points. And I think one point to add there is just around we're now starting to see some attacks on some of the coins that have a weaker hash rate or they've tried to do something complex and have a bit of a hybrid mechanism of, you know, combined with pr combining proof of work with some other thing with some other thing. And what, what happens then is we get we end up with attacks being performed and double spend attacks performed on other chains. And this has happened, I believe, on Vergecoin and some others. And what this does to the market is it provides less surety in the coin. And it means people, if, if it gets attacked, well, then why would people want to store attacked in such a way that you can't use it or attacked in such a way that it's there's inflation well then why exchanges now don't want to list that altcoin or people feel less comfortable to store value and i think that's a good point that you, you were sort of um talking around there just then jw as well is the importance of having efficient production of hash power such that people feel you know, that credible commitment and that, that, that uh, comfort to store value. Yeah. I mean, if people understand what's going on, they, they will, they will realize that what they really want is they want the maximum amount of electricity to be consumed in the most efficient way possible uh, in confirming their transaction. And the reason that they want that is that it disincentivizes the attacker. Because the attacker that wants to do a double spend, that wants to steal their money, um, needs to spend money on electricity in order to do that. And if he can spend money on electricity 10 times more efficiently than the honest actors in the network, then he can attack the network by spending 10 times less money. And that's not a good thing, right? You want it to be as expensive as humanly possible to steal funds or to attack the network in a way that allows you to steal funds through double spends. Um, so that's why it's so important that, uh, that we don't try to create coins that are, quote, ASIC resistant. Um, because ASIC resistance, a better way to say ASIC resistance, which ASIC stands for Application Specific Integrated Circuit, but it just means it's a computer that's specially designed for only this one task. Which means it's like a roofing hammer versus a you know a regular framing hammer that you can use for everything, including roofing. It's specialized, which means it's better at that particular task than anything else that is not designed for that particular task. So we want that because we want that electricity to be burned as efficiently as possible because we want the attackers not to have another way to burn the electricity any more efficiently. So if whatever the network is using is at the height of human capability, so if you look at Bitcoin, we're running stuff that's around the 10 nanometer range. That is the height of human capability. It is systems and uh, machines that are designed to solve this problem, to, to burn this electricity in the most efficient way that we know of. As far as we know, there's not even any alien technology out there that can do this more efficiently. That's what you want. You want that to be what's protecting your network. Because then that's the only thing that's available for the attackers to attack your network. And then the incentives work out pretty well, where it's more cost-effective to defend than it is to attack. But if you take the approach that these altcoins have taken, and you sell out your security because it's good marketing spend, um, then you know, you're a short-lived scam, and you know, eventually you're going to suffer the consequences like all of these coins have you know, eventually and will continue to.
Yeah, great points, JW. Um, so that's kind of uh, comments on mining in terms of which algorithm we use and what, you know, proof of work, so on. How about now mining from a centralization and decentralization point of view? I think it would be fair to say that Bitcoin's mining is more decentralized than the others because we've got more full nodes running and we've got more miners that are geographically distributed. Though there could be some improvement. Um, but do you have any comments on mining decentralization compared to altcoins? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the real issue here is that um, you don't really want decentralization. What you want is security. And decentralization is a tool that allows you to provide some security if it's done properly. So I'll give you an example of a way that you could have decentralization and not have any security. Uh, let's say that you come up with, uh, with a mining algorithm and uh, you don't write any software to do the algorithm. You just have a step-by-step -step guide in a document um, and you tell people to use pen and paper and solve for blocks. Now, I'm a little hesitant to even suggest this because I think there's probably going to be an altcoin in the next week called JW coin that somebody's going to be marketing because uh, this is a really stupid idea, but it would it would probably appeal to you know a number of people. Um, and the reason for that is that it would allow anybody to grab a pencil and a piece of paper uh, with, and that would be the maximum capital investment required, and they could start solving this math problem. Uh, to verify blocks. And if they solve the math problem and they submit it to the network, they could get rewarded with these, you know, these, these retardo coins. The problem is that that would be extremely decentralized, right? It, it would be no, uh, no barrier to entry, right? Anybody with access to a pen and paper and an internet connection could immediately be helping to secure the network in theory, right? But the problem is that even if that was decentralized, it could become immediately centralized. It could overnight go from the most decentralized network with you know, people all over the world with pen and paper to one guy that took their time to write the code to actually solve the math problem on his just you know, MacBook Pro, right? Um, so it's not enough to be decentralized uh, to have security. You need to be decentralized in a way that you can't be easily centralized, right? In other words, with all of the hash power that a bunch of people could be doing with pen and paper, um, it would pale in comparison to what you could do on your MacBook Pro. So let's say that you had you know, 0.0001 uh, uh, hashes per second happening, something like that. Uh, but then I write the code and I run it on my MacBook Pro, and now the network has uh, 1,000 hashes per second. And I own you know, 99, 900 and, uh, or 999.99 .99 hashes per second, then I've immediately centralized the network in one fell swoop. And, uh, and that, that's not good, right? So it's not enough to be decentralized. You need to be decentralized in a way that is very expensive to create overnight centralization. And that's the problem with any of these coins that are attempting to be ASIC resistant is somebody creates an ASIC and then the next day, you're no longer decentralized and the attacker has control of your network. Yep. And then in that time, they might need to, again, you know, once they start changing the proof of work algorithm or changing the algorithm that secures the network, then it takes time for the creators of the mining hash power equipment to go and you know, make efficient uh, technology that works to that. And as you were saying, then they would not be at the limit of human ability. And so, again, we're kind of falling back into that same problem. So it's for good reason that, you know, a proof of work change or a change to the algorithm should be, you know, people should be quite skeptical of that and it should be, it should be quite a process before that occurs. Well, so let's, let's look back at the guys with paper and pencil, right? There's, there's some things that are great about that, that anybody can have it and there's lots of people all over the world that are doing that. And the reason that that's valuable from a security standpoint is that if uh, somebody wanted to come to everybody's house with a gun or they wanted to go after all the miners with a gun and say, you're going to, you're going to ignore these transactions or you're going to include these transactions, that would be very difficult because all over the world you have people with pen and paper and you have to try to you know, track down where these people are at and attack them all at the same moment, right? So that's the upside of that approach. The downside is that they're not working at the height of human capability. So what we really want is we want the, 
We want both, right? We want um, we want people distributed geographically um, and with administrative uh, distribution too, right? It doesn't do us any good if we have you know computers all over the world in different locations if they're all controlled by one guy, because then the guys with the guns just go get that one guy, and it doesn't really matter yet. So we want. <coughs> administrative decentralization we want geographic decentralization but we have to have the mining happen like you said at the height of human capability so what we really want is we want asics that are commoditized Um, as you march closer towards um, cheap available access to the computers that can operate at the height of human capability that's your march towards security so something like a proof of work change that you're referencing on any of these coins is an intentional and very deliberate act to weaken the security of the network, um, and that only makes sense if you're uh, if you're a scammer. Yep. Yep. Good points. Good points. Okay. So let's uh, now talk a little bit about some of the financial components of the network effects that are working in favor of Bitcoin. One example of this would be futures. Futures are currently only existing for Bitcoin on CME and CBOE. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I think that over time, we should expect that um, that the, the, old, uh, the old financial network, the old financial system is going to begrudgingly probably accept more and more of the new financial system. Um, I think eventually, you know, this is a little bit controversial, but I think eventually, in spite of all of the scams and the ICOs, we will see stocks and bonds and other financial assets um, fully digitized. And we will see people authenticate their ownership of those assets through a private key. And I think that it only makes sense that those things are going to be on the most secure network available. Um, Just like, you know, if you're building an application today, you build it on the Internet because it's just the most, uh, it just makes sense. Uh, I think in the same way, if you were going to digitize an asset, uh, you would put it on the public blockchain, uh, which is Bitcoin. Um, So I think all of those things are going to happen eventually in spite of all the ICO scamming, because those guys are taking advantage of a a grain of truth in order to sell a bunch of lies. Um, But I don't think it's going to happen overnight. And I think it's completely fine that we still don't have an ETF, a Bitcoin ETF or whatever. I think if you look at what happened with the internet, there was a lot of negotiation between the old world system and the new world system. And eventually the old world system just, it either submitted and joined or it just became unimportant. And I think that's what we're going to see here as well. Yeah, yeah, great points. Agreed. And I think that sort of ties into the next point, which is around the fact that upper layers are being built on top of Bitcoin. So an example would be the Lightning Network or liquid assets or other uh, proposals to tokenize assets. But people are building, the smart people are building on top of Bitcoin. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I think it goes back to the uh, the internet analogy, uh, the internet protocol analogy, or really any open source software that's on a protocol. Um, if you if you actually want to solve a problem right now, and you're not going to pretend to solve a problem, um, so let me give you an example of pretending to solve a problem. Uh, Bitcoin Cash, right? These guys said, "Hey, we need more transactions per second, um, so we are going to increase the block size and get wait for it." a linear improvement in scale. So we're going to take a critical security parameter. We're going to monkey with that thing and we're going to do it so that we can do double the transactions per second. It's absolute insanity when you're working on something that we expect viral adoption. And we don't, you know, we don't want to go from, I don't know, 21 transactions per second to 42. We need to go from 21 transactions per second to 21 million transactions per second. So we're not going to jack with like a critical security parameter in order to get irrelevant scale. But if you're actually trying to solve a real problem, you're going to, you're going to contribute to Bitcoin, right? In one way or another, you're going to build on top of that. Just like if you were trying to uh, you know, build any kind of application right now, you'd be building on top of the internet. Um, if you're trying to build a financial application like Lightning that supports fast transactions or Liquid that supports assets, you're going to build that on top of Bitcoin. There's just no reason not to. Um, the financial incentives not to are really only if you're going after that sweet, dumb money. Uh, and unfortunately, we've seen a lot of that. 
Yeah, good points. Good points. Uh, I I think the next one that would be a great one to touch on is just the fact that of all the cryptos that exist today, Bitcoin is the most decentralized and it has so far resisted all sorts of attacks. Let's talk about some of the attacks that Bitcoin has resisted thanks to its decentralization. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I actually, I mean, I, I have, I've gone back. So I'm relatively, I guess I'm coming up on, maybe I'm getting close to a year. Um, I guess, well, not quite. Um, last November is really when I got super interested in Bitcoin. Um, and so most of the attacks, maybe all of the attacks um, that really gave Bitcoin a run for its money happened before I got involved. Um, but I have gone back and kind of looked at that, that history. Uh, Bitcoin Cash is definitely gave it a run for its money. Um, that was, you know, a lot of people know about this, but it was basically an attempt to increase the block size to a dangerously high level that would cause centralization. Um, and that would be good for some people and obviously bad for the rest of us. Um, and it kind of fell on the heels of SegWit2x, which was also an attempt to increase the block size to a dangerously high level to cause centralization. And I think that fell on the heels of Ah, man, I'm starting to get out of my depth a little bit on the history, but Bitcoin Unlimited, which I think fell on the heels of Bitcoin XT, and I'm pretty sure there was something before that. But um, but the pattern is all the same, right? Like there's been a concerted effort to increase the block size to a level above which we believe uh, is safe as far as encouraging decentralization or maintaining the level of decentralization we think is safe. Uh, but there, there have been a couple new ones since I've been around that I think are interesting. Um, I think yeah, Segwit two X would be a good one. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let's see. So Grin is one that's ongoing right now. Um, Grin is basically an attempt to create a, a coin, um, and I haven't. I've been hesitant to call it an attack. Um, I think this is probably the first time. Nah, maybe maybe I've called it an attack once uh, in the in the last couple weeks, but. The, the, the challenge with Grin is that it's based on something that's interesting. So Mimblewimble is actually an interesting concept. It has a lot of value in at least an academic sense, if not in a, you know, in, in an implementation sense. Um, so I think a lot of us have been hesitant to treat Grin as negatively as we've treated Bitcoin Cash. But really, Grin is just a more well, Grin is a less ham-fisted version of Bitcoin Cash. Um, what Grin is attempting to do is compete with Bitcoin as money, which is going to uh, slow the adoption of Bitcoin. Um, and it's it's trying to do that by mixing some actually interesting stuff with some poison pills. And the poison pills involved in Bitcoin are, are basically two things. One is it's using an insecure mining protocol. So we talked about how we want... Um, We want the people that are securing the network to end up with commoditized hardware, right, that anybody can get access to for relatively cheap, uh, that works the height of human capability. What Grin has done, and what a lot of these altcoins have done, is they've specifically designed an algorithm that makes that difficult, right, that is ASIC resistant. Um, So that's a big problem from a security standpoint. Uh, But if people are confused about that, they would tend to you know, start investing in Grin, maybe owning Grin, um, only to find out eventually that it's actually not a good money because it's based on, uh, it has a security flaw, which is its mining algorithm is designed essentially to be insecure. Um, and then the other, the other problem with Grin is it has a monetary policy that is very inflationary. Um, it, in the year 2140, when Bitcoin no longer is issuing any new coins uh, or it's issuing dust, right? It's issuing the tenths of a Bitcoin or something. Uh, Grin will still be issuing about 2% per year, um, which if you believe the Fed is about where the Fed is right now. So we have 120 years before Grin is going to suck less than the current Federal Reserve with the US dollar. Um, so that's, that's obviously not good and not ideal. Um, from a uh, from a monetary standpoint, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think Grin's an interesting attack. I think insecure sidechains are also an interesting attack. So there, there's been a few little things um, since last November, but really Segwit2x was the last big hurrah, I think, and probably the last one that's going to have nearly as much chance. I think I think we're looking pretty good from here on out. Yeah, yeah. But I think for people who are sort of new to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, it might be good to just outline a little bit around what happened with SegWit2x. Uh, did you want to comment on that or shall I? 
Uh, actually, go for it, man, because you probably you probably uh, were watching this closer than I was at the time, and, and have a little bit more. Sure, sure. Okay, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just quickly outline a little bit around the Segwit two X. So essentially, there was a bit of a debate, kind of, and uh, all of the kind of Bitcoin XT, Bitcoin Unlimited stuff was sort of coming to a head around the middle of last year, to two thousand seventeen, and people were basically coming to a point where they're saying, okay, fine, we're gonna agree amongst the big uh some of the big uh hash power you know mining uh pools and also some of the large bitcoin companies and they were saying okay fine we're gonna have segwit and also raise the block size 2x and so what happened over that time is that despite a large amount of the bitcoin hash power supposedly you know in quotation marks signaling that they would move to the Segwit2x chain. And despite many of the large Bitcoin businesses also saying, yeah, we're going to change over to Segwit2x and we're going to change the BTC ticker to become the Segwit2x chain. Despite all of this, Bitcoin resisted that attack. And the way it did so was through many people discussing with each other on Twitter and so on. um, And also through things like the futures prices. So at the time, some of the exchanges, such as Bitfinex, released a token, and they had B1X and B2X. And at that time, now I recall, people could basically trade in a BTC and convert it into a B1X and a B2X, which represented each side of the fork. And what happened is there was kind of like a market. And in that market, to my memory, I remember the price of B2X, as in the coin representing Segwit2X, was 015 whereas the B1X coin was 0.85. And so you could see already from that, the market was not very confident in Segwit2x. And and there was even further that came to a head when it actually came time to try and do the fork. There was a problem with the software and there was not a sufficient level of review of the code. And then Jeff Garzik, one of the people who was pushing Segwit2x, basically had to try and quickly release some new patch and there were miners who got stuck on an old block because uh, I can't remember the detail, but essentially there was an off by one error in the code. So uh, basically the reason I bring this up is just to point out that despite you know large Bitcoin businesses and hash power, Bitcoin still resisted that because ultimately miners are kind of employees of the Bitcoin system, so to speak. The Bitcoin holders are the ones who kind of pay the miners, in a sense, in their inflation. And so they were able to resist that. And that's another reason that people can have confidence in Bitcoin's monetary policy, which kind of lines back to what you were saying there around Grin and their 2% monetary policy and other coins, which all have much more inflationary policies. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's no question that the coin that is the most secure is going to win. The every, everybody recognizes that, right? Because something with the security flaw, we're pretty confident at this point that anything with a security flaw is eventually going to be exploited. So the question is not whether the most secure coin is going to win. The question is, can we as attackers deceive enough suckers? Can we get enough people that either lack the economic knowledge or the technical knowledge? Um, to understand what's happening here, to buy our garbage um, before it becomes clear that it's garbage, um, and so yeah, great I think, point. I think that's that was always the play. I think the reason that, and again, I'm, I have the benefit of hindsight looking back, but I think the reason that that those bugs were there is that nobody really took it seriously. Even the scammers, I don't think, took the Segwit two X coin seriously. Um, maybe they would have if they had gotten some traction, but. From day one, it was obvious that this was a security flaw to everybody, right? And because apparently not everybody, but say 85% of all of the investors could tell that this was a really, really bad idea. Um, And it wasn't a new bad idea, right? Because it was like Segwit2x was the fifth or something version of this idea. Um, And there was some analysis. I think I saw some analysis that said that somewhere around three megabytes, we start to see more latency and more tendency for centralization. Um, so Segwit2x actually wasn't an increase from one megabyte to two megabytes because Segwit itself was an increase from one megabytes to two megabytes. Uh, but it was a doubling of the doubling. So it got us, I think it, 
somehow it may have even ended up around eight megabytes. But uh, but like I said, I didn't live it, but I know it was at least a doubling of the two megabytes in SegWit. So maybe it was four megabytes. Um, but either way, it was above the the only real research on the topic that had been published said, you know, somewhere around two, three, it starts getting dicey. Um, I don't think it was coincidence, coincidental that they wanted to choose something that was above that, that safe threshold. Because if you could pull that off, right, if you, uh, if you own a lot of the hash power, let's say you own 50% of the hash power, if you can pull that off and cause um, enough latency in the network to where people that are not right next to you uh, are not as profitable as people that are right next to you, um, which is essentially what we're trying to avoid, um, then you can end up with 100% of the hash power. And if you have 100% of the hash power, then you control the network and you could, you know, you could change anything you really wanted to about it in theory. But at the end of the day, it also illustrated something that I don't even think the attackers quite understood that you just said. And that is that the only thing that matters is what people want to buy. That's where the value comes. If I buy it, I value, I hold it, I create a market value for it. Um, I'm willing to buy more of it. And if somebody does pull off an attack, uh, then that thing is going to be less valuable. So in the long run, it doesn't work. But maybe in the short run, you can screw over some people that don't know what's happening. Yeah, great points, JW. Um, That brings me to the next point I wanted to discuss, which is around the concept of affinity scamming, which is one of the ways people scam people in this space. So let me just quickly kind of define it and read from basically the Wikipedia page and then JW, you can comment on that. So affinity fraud is a form of investment fraud in which the fraudster preys upon members of identifiable groups such as religious or ethnic communities, language minorities, the elderly or professional groups. The fraudsters promote affinity scams frequently are or successfully pretend to be members of the group. They often enlist respected community or religious leaders from within the group to spread the word about the scheme by convincing those people that a fraudulent investment is legitimate and worthwhile. Many times, those leaders become unwitting victims of the fraudster's ruse. Now, the parallel that we see in the crypto world is people who are well-known Bitcoiners will come out and become an ICO advisor. Do you have any comments on that, JW? Yeah, I think I think this is uh, this is definitely what is going on. Um, in a way, I think that uh, you know the affinity scam is just uh, good PR, right? If you hire a really good PR firm, they'll help you segregate your target market. They'll help you figure out what messages are going to resonate and which spokespersons you should use for which sub you know subgroup. Um, so in a way, it's very natural. But if what you're selling is not useful and it's actually a scam, then, you know, then I think you could definitely label it, you know, affiliate uh, scamming or affiliate fraud um, or sorry, affinity. Um, and I do think that it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's natural that this would happen in a sense, right? Like if you, if you look, I like the reference to the religious community, because if you look at the Mormon community, um, if there's one thing that I know about the Mormon community, it's that multi-level marketing scams spread like wildfire in there. If you can get one of those things going within the within the Mormon community, you have a cash cow because they're they're a to- tight knit group. They talk, they have you know pretty close relationships. Um, you know, they're basically a network of people that's relatively efficient uh, in communicating opportunity. Let's say, so if you can get a scam in there, it, it performs really well. I think the libertarian community, in a sense, is you know it is in a way a religious group, right? It's an ideological group, and I think that what you've seen with some of these uh, crap coins is that they have specifically targeted the libertarian community um, and sold them on. They're slight, slightly correct, but but ultimately wrong understandings of economics in order to get them to buy into things that are that are really bad ideas. Yeah, great point, great point, and it's a similar. So yeah, you we'll see that in certain altcoins, and then we'll see that in terms of some ICOs and some other um, projects that get someone to be an advisor and just kind of you know, or they do partnerships, right? That's the other way that they all try to affinity scam. Um, So I think these are all great points. And I think the next section that we should do is let's do a little breakdown on some of the large altcoins and what we perceive as the problems in some of them. So um, how about uh, EOS? Do you have any comments on EOS, JW? 
Yeah, so EOS, I think the idea that it was marketed as was the Ethereum, like the Chinese version of Ethereum. Um, a lot of these, a lot of these altcoins I haven't spent a ton of time with because they're just such a bad idea. Like once you understand yeah. that money needs to be one thing and that people are going to have a tendency to uh, select the thing that holds its value the most and is the hardest to steal, um, then the idea of like competing currencies, unless they can actually outperform Bitcoin, become really uninteresting, right? Like I don't need to know a ton about EOS. All I need to know is that it doesn't have a reasonable chance of competing with Bitcoin. And I know that it's a failure, right? So it, it's hard for me to get super interested in these things. The other problem that I've faced as a security researcher looking at these uh, that's kept me from being super interested in becoming an expert on any of them is that if you look at the top 10 list, um, and I actually did do a top 10 review of cryptocurrencies back in November, um, and it, it doesn't even match the top 10 list now, right? Like these, these altcoins, these frauds, they, re, they, they have a very short life cycle, right? There, there's a big marketing spend. There's a big buildup. There's a massive influx of dumb money. And then there's, a, there's a, a pretty rapid demise. I mean, it could be over a period of years, but when you're talking about the amount of money that's involved, years is not, is not a lot. Um, but yeah, EOS is essentially, uh, the idea of EOS and the idea of a lot of these things is it's as good as Bitcoin plus, so EOS is all about, like Ethereum, it's as good as Bitcoin, plus you can get smart contracts on it. Now, how do they do that uh, You know, at the time that they're selling the tokens? Well, that's not important, right? What's important is that we have a sentence. Uh, I think EOS, maybe it was Tron. One of these guys even just copied uh, a white paper from somebody else, did a quick find and replace, and even failed to do an effective find and replace and still raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so yeah, that's right. I think that was Tron. Yeah, yeah. So these guys are—they're—they're they're not even taking their own scam very seriously. It's hard for me as a security researcher to take it very serious myself. Um, but yeah, it is yeah. not that right. It is not Bitcoin plus smart contracts. It is—it um, is not a secure asset to begin with. Um, and so it's not interesting whatever features they might have on top of it. Um, you know, some people have called these feature coins, but you can't have a feature without the base layer and you can't have the base layer without be beating Bitcoin for it because it's a winner take all game. That's what money is. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, uh, it's not a good yeah, idea. Great point. I, I think the market's finally beating the heck out of everybody that, uh, that <laughs> yeah, I think essentially the, some of the problems with EOS is they basically sacrificed decentralization so that they could get high transactions per second. But, you know, as we were saying, that's, that's, you're giving up the game. Um, I think the next one to look at would be Ripple. Uh, one comment I'll just make on Ripple is that this company, they, issued 100 billion XRP tokens, and they own something like 60% of the supply. So when new people come in, they're basically, they come in and buy XRP, they're basically enriching the founders and enriching Ripple. Yeah, I, I, I'll comment on Ripple, but I do want to just mention that EOS, the way that you characterize that was far more legitimate than I think is reality. They did not make a design trade-off to get faster transactions per second, and oops, that compromised security. They, from the beginning, yeah, yeah. had no chance of building anything of value, and it's very obvious to anybody with enough technical depth that they didn't even intend to, they didn't even try. Um, so, you know, these, these are definitely frauds. They're definitely scams. And if we had a, if we had an effective justice system, these people would easily be convicted, right? There's, there's no, it, it's not hard. Like the guy that built the, the, the thing that you set under your trailer that sends out radio waves and supposedly keeps mice from entering, right? Like he's in jail right now, but that had far more basis in science and, and, possible truth than anything that the EOS guys were doing. Um, so it's important to, to uh, set that as a baseline. Like you guys should understand, these are not people that are experimenting and maybe we'll stumble across something wonderful. These are people that are not even experimenting. Like from day one, they are not investing heavily in development. All of their money and all of their energy is going into marketing and getting poor fools to be confused. So I think that's that's an important sort of backdrop for this stuff. Um, yeah, now, fair point. 
the the ripple is ripple is a great example of this right the, these guys will present themselves as we're trying to be the regulated token we're trying to be the token that works friendly with banking um if you believe that you know if you're not one of these crazy uh, libertarian anarchist nuts that thinks that bitcoin's going to destroy banking uh we're the token for you right we're we're the token for the regular guy that actually thinks that Chase and Bank of America and the U.S. dollar is still going to be here in 50 years. So it is an excellent, uh, it's an excellent pitch. Uh, but now let's look at the reality, and you'll see just how uh, dishonest and illegitimate this thing is. So one thing to understand right off the bat is that there's two things happening here. There's a, a consulting company called Ripple, and then there's a token called XRP. So the scam is, and the way that it's been executed pretty effectively is that the consulting company will do something and then make a press release and confuse people to think that there's something happening with XRP so that the price of XRP goes up. I'm going to give you the quintessential example that they pulled off. The consulting company made a deal with BBVA. BBVA is known in the US as a bank that has a tendency to do a lot of pilots, a lot of experimentation. Almost none of it goes anywhere. But maybe it's part of their marketing strategy, or maybe they legitimately are trying to be new and innovative. But they have a reputation for doing a pilot with just about anybody that has uh, a story. Now, they don't actually put any skin in the game, right? BBVA didn't actually spend any money to make this happen. But the guys at Ripple, at the consulting company, they were able to get BBVA to agree to do a pilot. Now, this is not a live pilot. There's no real money involved. But the idea was that the Ripple folks in the consulting company, we're going to do some experimentation and show BBVA how they could do faster settlements. Now, nothing actually came of that, but the Ripple company was able to do a press release. And what the press release said was Ripple does a deal with BBVA in order to facilitate interbank transfers, right? Boom, great headline. People are very excited. So what do they do? They go buy Ripple. But you can't buy Ripple. You buy the XRP token. Now, the XRP token is often called Ripple, but had nothing to do with the pilot. In fact, BBVA eventually let out a press release, or maybe it was just the VP that was in charge of the, um, of the project, uh, made an announcement and essentially said, look, we did a pilot with these guys. It didn't go anywhere. We do lots of pilots. There was no value in anything that the Ripple consulting company brought us. Now, that didn't stop the XRP token from pumping in value quite a bit. But that's exactly the kind of nonsense that we're dealing with here. And Ripple is one of the biggest, right? They're one of the most respectable. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I think it's really obvious that these guys are charlatans, right? These are not scientists that are working on interesting stuff. If you buy into it, you're buying into a Ponzi scheme at best. And you're hoping that if you're smart, you're hoping that the Ponzi scheme is going to be effective and you're going to get out before the house of cards comes down. You were not investing yeah. in something like nuclear fusion, which may or may not work, but if it does, is going to be wildly successful. There's there's no actual yeah. science happening here. Yeah, yeah. And one other point I would add just to the whole Ripple thing is that some of their products use XRP as part of the product offering and some of them don't. And the other thing is one of their products actually is something to do – it's sort of similar to like correspondent – like how banks would trans transact money internationally, right? Which currently the SWIFT network is in place for. And what has happened as a result of some of these uh, cryptocurrencies and you know related uh, projects is that SWIFT has gone and improved their game. So, you know, because it's all centralized anyway, why would they use your cent like Ripple's one when they can just use what they've already improved, you know, the upgraded version of what they're already on? Um, but anyway, let's move on. Uh, let's now, so as you touched on this before, how about let's, uh, let's go into Bcash and how they're a bit, you know, centralized. Yeah, so, so Bcash actually, um, I think it's finally over, right? I think it is, uh, it's on its last leg. So if you have any Bcash left, uh, now's the time, uh, in my view. Now, I could be wrong because, you know, the thing with scams is it's really hard to time when to get in and when to get out. And if you can time getting in and out of the scam well, um, especially if you're the guy running it or he's your brother or something, you can do better on a scam than you can do on, you know, a legitimate project. Uh, but that's the trick, right? Are you part of that inner circle that's being, that's doing the fleecing or are you part of the, uh, the outer circle that's getting fleeced? 
Um, and maybe more importantly, you know, if you have any ethics at all, uh, are you going to be able to uh, feel like a, a healthy, happy human being participating in these, these uh, you know, vile, uh, wealth-destroying creations? Um, so Bcash is, you know, essentially just increasing the block size, right? They, they, they made an exact copy of Bitcoin, and they increased the block size uh, by uh, 100%, um, which was what Segwit2x was attempting to do. Um, and then the only thing that the only other thing that, that differentiates them is that they didn't include a security fix um, that was included with SegWit. Um, there was a bug in Bitcoin called transaction malleability, which basically allowed you to change certain parts of the transaction. They weren't really critical parts, I and mean, it's not like you could change the amount or the source address or the destination address, but you could change the transaction enough. To where layer two solutions like things like Lightning and other interesting things that would build, be built on top couldn't easily be built on top because there was just a little bit of unpredictability. Um, so it was a security flaw, it, but it just wasn't a super high priority security flaw for a long time in Bitcoin. It eventually got fixed with the SegWit release, um, and it actually had uh, some interesting uh, side effects of fixing this. One is that there was a way that um, that miners could pretend to be doing work. They could essentially fake proof of work by, let's say, 15%. I don't know what the exact percentage was. Um, and the problem with that is that the whole point of proof of work is to prove that you spent, say, $100,000 on electricity or $3,000 on electricity. If, if you didn't actually spend that amount, you spent 15% less, then you have an advantage and you've also deceived the network into how much it would cost to attack it. Um, so it's not, it wasn't good, but it wasn't a deal breaker. It was kind of a known thing. It really came to a head with Segwit2x and Bcash because some people, we believe, were exploiting that flaw and taking advantage of that, and it was making their business much more profitable. So implementing that security fix would have prevented them from uh, from profiting as much as they were by faking that they were doing work that they weren't doing um, that gave them an advantage over the other miners that they were competing with. And so when that security fix got implemented in Bitcoin, uh, Bcash popped up. And Bcash was uh, a copy of Bitcoin that increased the block size to a dangerous level and did not include the transaction malleability security fix. Um, and, you know, it's, it's had a good run, but I think, um, like I said, you know, security flaws are eventually exploited. Everybody knows that the game is just how much dumb money can we get between now and then? Yeah. Yeah. Good points. Okay. Let's, um, move on to Ethereum, uh, and talk about how, you know, I think they're quite centralized and their monetary policy is very uncertain. And also there are not that many full archival nodes running on Ethereum. So did you want to comment on that? Yeah, there are so many problems with Ethereum that I couldn't even do it justice. But it, it's like EOS or anything else, right? Like they have done an excellent job on marketing. They had the most beautiful website uh, that probably any cryptocurrency has had. Um, but they didn't spend a whole lot of money on, on actually designing a secure uh, system. And that's because I don't think they ever thought that they could. They've always been very clear that they do not want to be compared with Bitcoin. You know, they want to say Bitcoin can be money and will be smart contracts or Bitcoin can be money and will be the world's computer. That's not an accident. It's because they know that if people can see clearly that it is a head-to-head -head competition and they have any level of technical depth, they're not going to believe that Ethereum is going to stand up in the long run. So, Instead, they try to, the, to make it seem like they're not competing at all. Now, the reality is they are competing because a smart contract is only useful if it's built on top of money. Or another way to say that, at least, is that it's a whole lot more useful if it's built on top of money. Um, so if I could write a contract that, with you that says, you know, I'm going uh, to do X, Y, and Z as far as labor goes. If I get 50% done, I get this payment. When I get to 100%, I get this payment. If my performance is at this level, I get a bonus, right? That would be a, a smart contract. Now, imagine writing a smart contract like that, but the payments are not in money. That's not nearly as attractive, right? It's not nearly as useful. Yeah. So the, uh, the reality is that smart contracts... Uh, are a really cool concept. Um, they will eventually be uh, used uh, broadly. Um, and in some sense, they are used broadly now between multi-signature uh, wallets and the Lightning Network, which are both smart contracting systems or systems that use smart contracts to be, uh, to be possible. 
Um, but Ethereum was able to make it seem like Bitcoin was slow and not making progress. Uh, but really, at this point, I think the jig is up uh, because the simplest smart contract, and for many months, really, it's been up, uh, because the simplest smart contract is a multi-signature wallet, right? Where you have, or, or a multi-signature address, where multiple uh, signatures have to be applied in order to move funds. Well, you've been able to do that in Bitcoin for a really long time, but you cannot currently do that in Ethereum. Uh, there was a lot of multi-signature wallets that were full of this frothy ICO dumb money. And uh, the guy that actually wrote the programming language, uh, I think it's called Solidity, on top of Ethereum, wrote this, this wallet, right? And it is the simplest smart contract you could create. And it was so riddled with security flaws that after, I don't know, $10 million had been stolen, everybody had to pull their money out. So there is no smart contracting on Ethereum. Um, meanwhile, on Bitcoin, we, we have had multi-signature wallets for quite a long time or multi-signature addresses or transactions or whatever. Um, and also now we have... Uh, time-locked transactions that allow us to create something like the Lightning Network. So smart contracts are good. They're moving forward. Ethereum never had a chance of being really useful, but again, uh, did a great job marketing and definitely sucked in uh, quite a bit of dumb money. Yeah, good points. Good points. Agreed. All right, let's now proceed to the next level of uh altcoins we've got the privacy coins so i know you've you had an interview on monero with uh, fluffy pony who is the lead maintainer um one of the main comments i think we can say about monero is that it's just it's not scalable it, they took some technology that um you know is interesting but then it just cannot scale to the level that bitcoin can uh did you want to comment on that yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I've talked a lot about Monero. It's probably the thing that has got me the most flack because, because it, I mean, the thing about a lot of this stuff, a lot of multi-level marketing or just flat out Ponzi schemes, part of the reason they're effective is that people don't want to believe that they've been screwed over. They don't want to accept the fact that they've been ripped off. So if you have invested yeah. in a Ponzi scheme, um, you, you would almost, in many cases, rather just lose your money than go through the mental anguish of recognizing that you've been had. Um, and that maybe, and this is the most painful part, that you were complicit in having people that you love and care about being had as well, right? If you can get somebody to buy your scam, that's step one. If you can get somebody to suck in their friends and family into your scam, that's wonderful because now... You have, uh, you have somebody that is very deeply invested and will struggle psychologically to accept that they have actually harmed the people around them that they care about. So you've actually created this wonderful sort of insulation barrier between you and the victims, right? And it's almost a Stockholm syndrome thing, like the victims are on your side. So the problem with talking about something like Monero um, is that especially in the Bitcoin community, it is sort of the most or it's the least hated altcoin, right? Uh, Fluffy Pony is a very attractive uh, character, uh, very gregarious and, and fun. You know, he's done some brilliant marketing. I mean, the, the guy says that he doesn't market, but he is the best marketer in the space as far as I'm concerned, because he has been able to appeal to the smartest people and suck the smartest people into his scam. The problem is that this is a game about creating money, right? If, if we were looking at a bunch of startups and they were trying to ship out pet food to customers, you could say, mm, you know, maybe pets.com and mypet.com will both exist and they'll have, you know, 60 and 40% of the market share. But when you're talking about money, it's a winner take all proposition, right? It's, a, it's like an internet protocol where it's so much more useful if we all get on the same page or a language, right? It's so much more useful if we all speak the same language. That, uh, that we're going to end up with a, a single global money. And there's a little bit of economic science that you'd have to study to really believe me when I say that. But, but because of that, it doesn't really matter, even if Monero was able to have a slightly better uh, privacy experience, which is very, I think, arguable at this point, um, partly because there's so few transactions that happen on it. Um, I certainly wouldn't recommend anybody use it for secure transactions because if I was part of the surveillance apparatus, I would focus a lot of my energy on that. With very few people moving in and out of Monero, uh, I think it'd be very easy to figure out what's going on. Um, but the, the other issue with Monero is that, like you said, it doesn't scale. And since it doesn't scale, in other words, you could never use this as money, 
what are we doing here? Right? <laughs> it doesn't matter how private it is if it could never become money. Because what's happening right now, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, is that if you are investing in something like Bitcoin or Monero or Grin or any of these other coins, what you're doing is you're investing in a technology hoping that it will be adopted as money. Because if it's never adopted as money, it is just a set of ones and zeros that's useful for nothing else. Um, so if it can't become money and you're investing in it and it's purely digital, what are you like? What are you doing here, right? So that, that's really the problem yeah. with Monero. And, and I think it, it helps illustrate the problem with a lot of these things. Yeah, got it. All right. And we'll uh, just in the last few minutes, we'll hit the last one, Zcash. And so I guess some of the uh, opening comments I'd, li- I'd put on Zcash are that there has been some recent research done by the University, of Col- U- University College London where they were able to de-anonymize certain addresses. And I, I think what, 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 it, what it's getting at here is that in Zcash, not every transaction is in the shielded pool so some transactions are in the normal set and what they were able to do was find that the number of people you because the number of people weren't weren't kind of using the anonymity functions by default then the ones who were using it were somewhat able to be de-anonymized and this relates to the addresses used to pay the shadow brokers who uh, were also responsible for releasing the WannaCry exploit. Um, and also, I think Zcash also has a bit more kind of quote-unquote governance, uh, which might also be worth a comment as well. Did you want to comment on that, JW? Yeah, I think I think Zcash is, um, it's kind of funny because I, I like to try to, to, when I can, create analogies um, of other sort of technologies. So if you can imagine being in a boardroom and somebody comes in and they say, "Hey, we're going to um, we're going to create this new solution, and uh, it's going to compete with the you know the big competitor, right? Um, and what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to introduce this massive amount of trust um, because you're going to have to trust that when we set it up, we do it honestly, right? The users are going to have to trust this. Um, and uh, when we're done, we're, the advantage that we're going to get." is that if you opt in, you're going to get a certain feature. Now, we, we can't actually give you that feature by default because it's so inefficient, like it would never work. But if you trust us to set it up, then we can give you this feature that maybe if you use it, which you can't use it normally, uh, but if you choose to use it, could provide you this benefit. You would sound like an absolute madman. And if you, if you then said that the thing that we're building is uh, digital money, you would sound like 10 times the madman. Because there's no way that if you're trying to create a digital money that's going to compete with Bitcoin, that is designed specifically so that there is nobody that you trust, right? That's the whole idea of cryptography is you assume everybody's an attacker and everybody's evil. Um, and if you're going to take it to the point of actually being money, which is the most critical thing to keep us all alive because it's the, it's the glue and the, the fluid of the economy, um, and then you're going to say, well, we're going to make it so that you have to trust that we set it up properly. Otherwise, we can silently create more money and steal all of the value of your money. And the benefit for that is a feature that sucks so bad it has to be turned off by default. Like... This is, this is absolute, you know, this is nuthouse stuff. But if, um, again, if you're marketing, marketing it to a bunch of people in, you know, South Korea that don't speak English and, and don't, can't probably even, uh, understand what the heck this technology claims to be, uh, which is where a lot of this dumb money came from, or, you know, the guy that works at the, the, the grocery store that heard about Ripple and is now really excited about this new privacy coin, but has no technical knowledge at all. Um, then you know you you can make something that works, but I really think that if you see it in that light, you can see why I have just such disgust and disdain for this. And it's really unfortunate with something like Zcash because there are respectable people associated with these projects, um, and it's just disappointing to 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 see that uh, because they're they're you know they've sold out their reputations for for a, a few pieces of silver, and uh, it's you know this is a, this is a short lived scam. Uh, I think it's got you know maybe three or four years of legs on it at most. 
Mm, yeah, good points, JW. Okay, well, I think that's they're basically the key points. I suppose to summarize and just kind of wrap a, a nice bow around this, we would say, you know, you've got to pay attention if you're new to this space. You've got to pay attention to the network effects and pay attention to what is really something that's, you know, scalable, makes economic sense, you know, has the right network effects around it, has the right developers, has the right incentives for, you know, people to buy it and hold it. These are all things that we have to consider when we're, you know, when people are looking, when they're trying to learn about cryptocurrency and understand why Bitcoin is special. So hopefully in this episode, JW and I have been able to explain that to you guys. Uh, And I suppose now let's just, uh, where can everyone find you, JW? Uh, Your Twitter account is uh, at weathermaniam. Uh, And also if you wanted to chat about MathBot. Yeah. Um, so uh, let me let me just uh, kind of uh, respond to that last comment as well. I realize that most people that have listened to this episode, they're they're at this point. I know because I've tried to communicate these things on Twitter. I've tried to communicate these things in one hour podcast for for a little while now. I know that there's many people that have heard this that just don't buy it, um, that don't quite understand, for example, why money has to be one thing that see that there's competing monies in the world and think that that will continue, that assume that money is like other technologies where you know competition is generally a good thing. right? Um, so at this point, what I've ended up doing is creating a class that I teach, and it's eight hours. Uh, it's very intensive. It starts at the basics and works all the way through the economics that you need to understand and the technology that you need to understand to at least avoid 95% of the garbage that's out there. Um, Eric Lombroso comes in and does a one-hour talk on the technology, and Seyfedina Mos comes in, uh, the Bitcoin standard guy, um, and he does a one-hour talk on the economics. Um, so, But I guess what I want to say there mostly is that it's okay if you don't believe me. I understand at this point that it requires a lot more work than I can do in a one-hour lecture. Um, but I would I would recommend that at least you take seriously the possibility that what I said is true and investigate it. Yep, yep, great points. Okay, uh, and uh, is there any any other projects you'd like to uh, yeah. speak about at this point, JW? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks again, man. Thanks for for giving me a chance to plug MathBot uh, twice. So. Um, the, the thing that I spend most of my, my time working on right now is mathbot.com. Um, so go check out, uh, go check out the website mathbot.com. It's basically a game that allows you to learn math, uh, by programming a robot. Um, it's great for basically anybody between five and 95. Um, and so if you're thinking about maybe changing your career and going into programming, or if you've got, you know, a, a seven year old kid and he's struggling with math, um, especially if he thinks he's not good at math, that's exactly who uh, who I care about most because all kids are good at math. Uh, they're just rarely taught it properly. Um, check it out um, and then give me feedback. Um, you can hit me up at WeathermanAM on Twitter and let me know if you know there's a bug or if it was fun or if you're stuck. Um, so you can pretty much get some pretty good free math tutoring out of me and programming tutoring out of me at this point because it's early. Uh, you know the, the application is still in beta. We're still building it, so. Um, there'll be little bugs here and there, but uh, in exchange for a little frustration, you'll you'll get a lot more attention from from me and the other uh, the other folks in the UL uh, when it's all polished up. So check out mathbot.com and uh, let me know what you think. Excellent. So guys, um, I will put a show notes page on my blog. Go to stefanlevera.com and search SLP4. And that will be the episode here with JW. And I'll put some of the links to the points that we've discussed. And I'll also link to to weathermaniam, which is JW's Twitter and mathbot.com. Otherwise, thanks very much, guys, and uh, have a great day. See ya.